Welcome to Intelligence Talks from the research team at Knight Frank. Intelligence Talks brings you the latest insights on property market trends and forecasts, along with expert analysis from industry leaders. I'm Anna Ward, Senior Residential Analyst at Knight Frank. The UK housing market continues to be heavily politicised. Getting on the property ladder in this country is something many aspire to, even as rental options are improving. But after decades of undersupply and current delivery setbacks due to COVID-19, how will the government approach housing going forward? Today, I'm joined by a special guest, Mark Priss, formerly Conservative Housing Minister between 2012 and 2013, and instrumental in the launch of the government's Help to Buy scheme. Hi, Mark. It's a pleasure to have you here on the podcast. My pleasure, Anna. Very nice to be able to join you today. I'm also joined by Knight Frank Residential Development Partner, James Keegan. Hi, James. Great to have you with us. Hi, Anna. Thanks for having me. So, Mark, just to start with you, how are you finding lockdown so far? Have you taken up any new hobbies since everything kicked off? I think the first nice thing to be able to do is not to have to be embroiled in the kind of political goings on that we're seeing across the media at the moment, but concentrating on being my own boss. And I enjoyed being in politics immensely. You get an opportunity to do things you would never otherwise be able to do. And as a surveyor, having been a housing minister and construction minister, it was a real opportunity to see the market from the top, as it were. But what I've been able to do in recent weeks is been busy actually with the work, which is good and encouraging, but actually my piano playing is now almost capable of being listened to by another human being. My sight reading was just truly awful, and I thought, right, here's a chance. I got some headphones and I was able to practice without driving the entire neighbourhood mad. So I now have a reasonable moonlight sonata to my name. And just drawing back to your time as housing minister, I mean, clearly we're in quite a weird situation now, but what would you say you missed the most from your time as housing minister back in 2012? I think the team I had in the ministry and also some of the leading players in the market were people I enjoyed working with. And being an effective minister, in my view, is about unlocking problems, about solving you know, challenges, whether it's in supply or demand. And so... It's that intellectual challenge of being able to say, right, we know, as I had in 2012, we had a a very sluggish housing market. We had first-time buyers unable to afford a deposit. So I was the minister that actually introduced the Help to Buy deposit scheme back in the budget of 2013. And I had 10 days, working days, from the day we announced it to having it operating on the ground across the country. That kind of practical problem solving at the top level is something I really enjoyed. There have clearly been a number of housing ministers. We saw Chris Pincher take on the role and he was the 10th we've seen since 2010. What advice would you give an incoming Conservative Party housing minister? What sort of skills do you think they need to last? Uh, Well, yes, to last, there's a good good challenge (laughs) to start with. It is a shame, although I think people sometimes obsess about that one individual. The truth is the secretaries of state and the ministerial teams do provide some continuity. But of course, there have been far too many And they've had far too little time individually to be able to make a difference. I mean, I was business minister before for two and a half years. That gave me the chance to get my feet under the table, learn and understand the challenges and be effective in the second half of my time as a minister. In 12 months, you've got very little time at all in a market where from, you know, the moment you get on site to completing a house is very often longer than my ministerial term of office. So... Being able to make a sustained difference is very difficult. That's why I was pleased to be able, for example, to get the loan guarantee schemes in for both affordable housing and for the build-to-rent sectors. Happy to get the help-to-buy scheme underway and then focus on unlocking some of the big sites. But I think an incoming minister should listen to what the industry is saying, 
recognize that it has a vested interest, but also listening to people who know that market well. And Chris is a pretty shrewd cookie, and I hope that he will do that. I've certainly given a number of previous housing ministers my advice in the last few years, and the good ones listen, not just to me, but listen generally, and then are able to make sound judgment. That's one of the important parts of the job. So taking a look at what Chris has got on his plate, particularly looking and thinking about housing delivery and targets, clearly the government had previously set out plans to build 300,000 homes a year by the mid-2020s and to build at least a million new homes during the next parliament. James, what are your thoughts on this point? Given the current crisis, do you think there's a danger that the government could find excuses now to not build enough homes for some time to come? I think it's very, very difficult. It's probably what has gone before and previous targets, I think really have to be looked at again. You know, we're in a new world now and we're not sure when things are going to fully be normal. It is how it's ever going to get back to or what that looks like. I think this is the opportunity really to look at how that housing was being delivered. Probably one of the key points and reassess those targets as well as how you can actually help people onto the ladder. Mark rightly pointed out the help to buy, but it feels like something else akin to that is going to be needed as well particularly with the younger demographic who a lot have been furloughed and may well be losing their jobs. I think a reassessment of those targets is very much needed. Mark, how about you? What are your views on that one? I think James is right to say that young people particularly will be hit by this virus because they're very often at the wrong point in their career plan and particularly many are often in service-facing, customer-facing industries where jobs are going to be lost more than elsewhere. I think the critical question here is confidence amongst the consumers. I've no doubt the house building industry will get back on its feet. Clearly there are supply difficulties and some businesses may struggle to operate. But the critical question, which no one can answer at the moment, is whether there will be sufficient confidence amongst people to see that market operate fully. My instinct is that volumes will be slow to start with, but may then start to gain. I think there will be some challenges for some of the social and affordable housing providers. I think not least around finance. I also think one of the ends of the market we need to think about are that older folk, many of whom will be more cautious about moving than they were before. The lack of supply of alternatives for them and therefore the impact that will have on the housing market, particularly chains. So I think although new delivery for government is obviously going to be the focus, I think we shouldn't also ignore the challenge in the existing housing stock because very often those people looking to buy a part of a chain, and if the top end of that chain, there's very little movement, then the stagnation around a lot of the housing transactions will continue. Have you seen other moments where the government has had to sort of totally revise housing targets? Presumably, you know, a million homes may not be feasible over the next parliament now. Yeah, I think for me, it's always about getting a steady rising number rather than stop-start. I think the problem in politics is that people's horizons tend to be measured in weeks and months, but in housing delivery, it's measured in years. And so getting that policy that provides a sustained three and five year program of finance and support that then gives people the confidence to plan their investment and their development, that is the challenge that's so important. So I want to see them announce soon the new loan guarantee scheme for affordable housing, I personally think, because I helped get it going, that Build to Rent and its evolution is very important in this, particularly for younger people. And I think as well, making sure that we 
think through how we eventually wind down the help to buy scheme. I think we need to do that. But timing now is going to be much more difficult. What about the overarching numbers, though? Because obviously the government has thrown out such big numbers. I mean, what do you think they can do to kind of move forward? And how do you think they can advise councils on local plans and I suppose being more lenient on actual numbers and things like that? Sure. I'm a big fan of using loan guarantee schemes because if the government can put into a deal at the start, what it then does is it gives confidence for investors and developers to act on that. If you give out grants, then you get into a much more complex system of whether or not you're going to be able to recycle some of that grant money and it becomes much more problematical. So I want to see the loan guarantee schemes rolled out. I'd like to see them to be a little looser than some of the controls they have on them now. But the $64 million question here is consumer sentiment. You know, house builders in the private sector are not going to build faster than they think the public will buy the properties they're building. So we're going to have a tension here, I think, between the natural desire to want to build more homes and the question in people's minds at the moment is, will customers come when we complete this and put it on the market? And that, I think, we don't know at the moment. I suspect by September, people will have got over the current sense of trepidation about going out and engaging in the market. But whether it'll rise back up, I suspect it'll take a couple of years. My instinct is the current targets are going to prove too ambitious. James Mark mentioned the build-to-rent sector. Do you think the pandemic will lead to a bigger role for professionally managed rental accommodation like build-to-rent? Yeah, I think inevitably it has to. I think one thing is certain that we will all come out of this with slightly less money and that will probably move us more towards a rental market again the younger demographic if you look at the investment sort of institutional investment specifically a place to put their money build to rent is something that they've been looking at for some time and, and it's growing and i think this will accelerate that what's difficult about this and mark's alluded to it is these things take time so to build something of any scale, call it three years, to get planning before that, a year, potentially two years if it's contentious. And I think also the affordable tenure within build to rent needs to be better understood and probably individually by councils. But yeah, I think without doubt, we'll see a surge in the build to rent. I suppose one of the questions I have is whether the private sector will actually withdraw with more institutional taking hold of that market. And Mark, what's your view on housing delivery in London specifically? Do you think there are any steps that can be taken to boost housing delivery in the capital? Well, this isn't meant to be a partisan comment, but I was very hopeful that the new mayor, Sadiq Khan, a few years ago was going to actually be quite pragmatic and all the signals were good. But boy, have they taken time to actually get their act together in London in terms of the London plan. The, what, two years between announcing that Transport for London were going to use their sites to actually getting Granger and others engaged feels unbelievably slow. So I think in the end, London and house building is about, as it is most places, it's about land availability. And I think the amount of public sector land in various forms has not been tapped effectively yet in London to start delivering lower cost housing, particularly for young people. I think we can all probably think of a transport interchange where, frankly, it should be under construction for quality accommodation. I think there are also other players in the private sector that could be engaged. We all are familiar with people like a pocket living, for example. So trying to deliver perhaps smaller unit sizes that are nevertheless within the budget of young people is important. But equally, James is right. I think build to rent the professional institutions not interested in buying a property to turn it over in time for capital gain, but interested in a long, steady rental income flow. 
and therefore able to deliver units of a reasonable quality backed by services in the property itself. That I think is a very important potential improvement to the marketplace. So, you know, I think I would want to see the government look at whether the planning rules, the stamp duty land tax arrangements, and perhaps some of the other rules around land ownership can be just loosened up to allow the market to come back into this make sure in doing so that the accommodation is affordable. James is right, particularly about that point about build to rent and affordability. I do think there needs to be more experimentation and that's where I would get the government to use its convening powers to put out best practice guides for local governments so councillors can quickly grasp the different models that are available that can actually deliver affordable housing in different tenures. I think there's a real opportunity there. Can you name some examples of what that might look like? You've obviously talked about loosening the rules and experimentation and kind of, yes. I guess, blending build to rent a bit more with affordable housing. So I think discounted rents within the affordable market, many people will know the affordable housing market has quite tight rules about what is defined as social housing and what is defined as sort of open market rent. And I know that some councils, I think Greenwich particularly, with one provider that I was involved in a few years ago, Essential Living, were quite prepared to look at a discounted pattern. You'd have something that was at 60% of market rate, 80% of market rate, and the authority was able to focus that on certain groups of key workers that they needed in their area. I think having a range of different price points, rent in this case, but nevertheless different levels, related to people's particular circumstances rather than just a standard line of it's got to be 80% or it's got to be 30% nothing else. I think that starts to introduce much more flexibility. I think also the Secretary of State's passion for shared ownership schemes, I think that's good. I think that's important. I think again that could be improved by clarifying what it means, by disseminating the information crisply and clearly by getting the industry to agree on certain ways in which the things are described and marketed so that when the consumer is coming to them, they understand what the different things are and what the choices are on the pros and cons. And that kind of market information, which isn't about one scheme or another, but helps the consumer make a rational choice, I think is really important. James, what about you? Would you agree with Mark on that? Would you add any other initiatives you may have seen just in terms of improving housing and rental affordability in London and the UK? I suppose day to day, my job is helping developers get planning and, and sort of working through the process. It's such an important topic. And yet, I think the understanding of it, whether borough to borough, certainly in London, how the GLA will approach it is often varied and sometimes conflicting. The real key thing for me, and, and Mark touched on it, is land. You know, the function of an appraisal, land built up with build cost, profit, fees, interest on debt. And then ultimately that then produces the overall appraisal. The cost of land tends to really inhibit the amount of affordable being delivered and the tenure type. So a shared ownership, whilst it is affordable, is actually in some ways not affordable to a lot of the demographic. I think what I'm really interested to see is how local councils use their land banks, the payments in lieu that they receive from developers to start to actually build their own housing. And I know a number of the London boroughs have done that. Lambeth most recently are looking very hard part of that. These are ways that I think are really needed to boost the supply. Otherwise, you know, again, coming back to this point, from the point of a site being ready to go through planning to delivering homes is years and years. And we've got to help in any way that we can. So councils playing a role in it, I think could be really interesting coming out of this. And just moving on to the young and first-time buyers, 
Mark, you know, clearly in light of the pandemic, the government is now in a position of working out how it could appeal to young people who may now struggle to secure work, might be living with their parents and may find it difficult to pay for a mortgage or rent a property. What sort of incentives do you think there could be for first-time buyers going forward? Well, I think, first of all, we've got to look at products, whether it's in the rental market or the home ownership market, that are at a lower cost, you know, in the round. That's the starting point. Hence, shared ownership can work. I think James is probably right in London. It may be particularly acute because of the land prices. But I think it is a product we should look at and the number of steps that are on it so that you can actually lower the first rung on the ladder, as it were. I think in terms of helping young people otherwise, I do think that reforming stamp duty land tax needs a further look. You know, the 125,000 bottom threshold is frankly very low once the tax bites for people in London and the southeast. So I think that is another area that is important. I also wonder whether we shouldn't turn the problems on the high street into an opportunity. Every high street will have empty shops and directly above that, there will be an empty first floor that's often been used for ancillary purposes to that shop. Now, those are in very often good central locations. They're already built. Yes, they're going to need upgrading and sorting out, and they may need a kitchenette to be installed or a bathroom to be installed. But actually, with a relatively smaller amount of money, there are quite a lot of properties that could be turned into perfectly good first homes, albeit potentially rented. Some could be on leasehold, though that obviously has a challenge in its moment. But I just, I look at that space above the ground floor of many of those empty shops and think we really ought to be able to be more innovative about this. I've put some suggestions into ministers about what we can do in terms of tax costs, in terms of the way in which they're held as investments and in the planning administration side of things. But, you know, I just think we need a little bit of thinking outside the box. And one of the ways is to say we have a lot of built stock at the moment, which could quite sensibly be converted into perfectly acceptable accommodation. What we need to do is to find the right incentives to nudge that into activity. And that could make a quite an important difference. After all, converting one of those into a home could take a few months. Whereas building from scratch, as James rightly said, on a, a new site could take years. So I think there are some other things which ministers need to do, and I shall certainly be adding my voice from the industry on those. James, what are your thoughts on the high street opportunity that Mark pointed to? Do you think that that is actually a realistic idea and do you think it could work in terms of providing enough supply? Yeah, I do. I think with something like this, you've got to look at all of the angles. I don't think there's going to be one sort of silver bullet. You've got short-term, medium and long-term approaches to this. The retail sector as a whole, I think, clearly has been in, in real trouble for some time. The high street has really struggled. But what we're seeing, certainly through a lot of the work that we do, is these retailers, particularly the biggest sort of funds, your land sex, really assessing what they have and what it could be. So a huge amount of the work that we do, which is perhaps more the medium to longer term, is how can you increase the density of your, whether it's a retail park or sort of in-town shopping centre, and particularly with a build-to-rent product where it's an income stream, it, it feels quite commercial compared to a sort of build and sell and you know, long leasehold, you don't control it. But I think that's going to become a much bigger supply for housing and affordable within that. You know, if you're building a series of towers around a, an already running shopping centre, effectively you already own the land, you're creating a bigger footfall. And I think also mixed use development is much more interesting. So yeah, it's, I agree with Mark and I also think the sort of medium to longer term 
approach through retail is there for people to take advantage of. Mark, how would you explain just the process, I suppose, of the government moving away from helped buy and its latest incarnation, First Homes? How would you explain sort of key differences there and the strategy behind First Homes? Yeah, so as I understand it, first of all, helped buy, I think, before COVID was felt to be a scheme that had done a perfectly reasonable job in the first couple of years, but now was propping up too many house builders' sales and needed to be slowly removed. So I think there's a recognition that that cannot be a permanent part of the marketplace. It shouldn't be, but you've got to pick the right moment. And of course, as we're discovering with COVID measures, it's quite difficult to unpick these once you put them into the marketplace. I think what the Secretary of State's focused on, as far as I understand it, is a genuine belief that First Buy offers an opportunity to enable the government to help people in other ways for home ownership. He's a very strong advocate for home ownership and believes that not enough young people have had the opportunity to be able to come into the market. And therefore, I think his perception is that if you make the first rung of that ladder a little bit lower and you standardize the way in which shared ownership is provided, then actually you can reach out to a much wider group of people. Now, clearly, there are mortgage discussions that need to take place around how that will work because there are different interests involved. But I think the priority here is to say, how do you move away from something that many people would feel has underpinned the balance sheets of house builders towards something that actually doesn't use the taxpayer's balance sheet, but actually is still helping younger people come into the marketplace for the medium and longer term? So I think that's how I would see the contrast between the two. I don't have a problem with using shared ownership in this field. I think it's an important piece of the jigsaw. But as James said, I think in terms of delivery as a whole, you've got to have an effective set of policies for social housing, affordable housing, the build to rent sector, home ownership, and within that, both the conventional home ownership and other less conventional things like shared ownership. You need all the different you know, elements firing on all the cylinders, as it were, in order to start to get that set of persistently higher numbers of homes being built year in, year out. And I think that's, that's what I, when I said at the start, you need to have policies that deliver a sustained change in the marketplace, something that delivers something quite exciting for 16 months or so, and then, you know, fizzles out. That isn't going to work. You've got to have sustained okay. programs. Do you think, though, that it would have perhaps been more successful to have brought in something like First Homes a bit earlier, given, as you say, its focus on, I suppose, a wider set of people? Yeah, I think I mean, what you've got to remember is Help to Buy came in in that period after the collapse in the marketplace when actually home finance was the cause, particularly in the United States, of that back in 2007, 8, 9. And so I think First Buy is kind of the idea is, is coming in, realizing that we've done that, that was perfectly fine, but now we need to move on. What is a sustainable model? For the longer term. And this, I think, is the Secretary of State's feeling that this is an area that he can make a difference on. And I think that's probably right. But equally, I would say that just as important are the loan guarantee schemes. You know, I think, okay, I'm biased. I was the minister there when we introduced them. But having a loan guarantee scheme, which underpinned both the bill to rent, private rented sector, and the affordable housing scheme, you know, three billion each, they were substantial sums then. And I think they did help Certainly, all the housing associations said to me that this has given them a three to five year development cycle, which is what they need. Governments, as I said, tend to think in weeks and months 
and the housing market thinks in years if not decades and so you've got to have something that you can put down and it's going to sit there for three to five years so people can actually plan ahead of the current set of circumstances to deliver that i think has got to be the right way forward on that point would you say then that the help to buy scheme should be extended just to make life easier as we deal with covid19 I suspect it'll have to be. It wouldn't be my first choice to do that. But I think in the current circumstances, letting it run certainly until Christmas and then Treasury having a look, see where the market is in the autumn of this year, get a sense of where things are. And if by October the housing market is operating reasonably, if not going full measure, as it were, but is operating reasonably sensibly, transaction levels are resuming, building is resuming house prices are stabilizing then i think you could look to do it but i suspect it will have to be pushed out for at least 12 months from when it was going to be wound down because no one knows what the sentiment will be and i think everyone's looking over their shoulder to see where the house prices will fall and if house prices might fall will buyers hang back in the expectation they could get something cheaper and you get into that circle which can be very difficult to break and what about Going forward, I think what's been quite interesting just to see, obviously, from this pandemic, clearly people are taking a bit more time. You mentioned, Mark, you are piano practicing, for example. But if we were to apply that to housing delivery, would you say it could be perhaps more appetite to think about more sustainable practices and, you know, slightly more beautiful buildings? The Building Better report came out. I mean, could there be an opportunity to really think differently about the built environment going forward? I certainly hope that a commitment to quality as well as quantity becomes the abiding gain here. I think central London, the zone one, the marketplace for flats is going to go through a a bit of a change because I think quite a lot of people have realized that actually within reason, they can now better balance their time working from home and needing to meet. So the five days a week which was already breaking down anyway. I mean, the truth was that Thursday night was the new Friday night in terms of commuting home. I think what COVID will do is will accelerate that trend. I think suburban locations, places where people can meet more informally and that are less pressured will become more popular. I think a desire for greater space where reasonable. So you may well see the greater Southeast and locations perhaps that have previously been regarded as slightly peripheral, actually coming into their own. That could encourage more mixed use because if people are at home more, they'll be buying services and so on more locally than in central London. So I think there will be a geographical shift and I think that will be welcome. And hopefully with that will come a commitment to quality of build and also quality of public realm. Placemaking is now going to be more complicated because what do we mean by social gatherings? You know, that perspective has changed, but I think commitment to quality in public placemaking is going to need to be even greater. And that, I think, is quite an exciting opportunity, actually. James, what about yourself? What would you say are the opportunities here for developers? I think if you were to ask the vast majority of developers, they would all want to build more sustainably, better quality of architecture, of finish, materials. The issue that we're going to have is, is purely feasibility. You know, these things do cost more. I think the, the Building Better article demonstrated really well that actually building to a better quality does generate a premium, which I would love to think developers will buy into and start to deliver a better quality of housing. But it really is going to be very difficult, certainly in the, in the short term, as things are more difficult in the market. My take on it is mixed use in particular will become more prominent. Mark sort of rightly mentioned a lot of this is unlocked by 
you know, ultimately we're talking about risk. One of the key risks is funding. So by providing loans or in the case of mixed use, de-risking to having different sectors on site. So whether that's an office with residential or hotel along with retail or ground floor, there are all different uses that have a, a different risk profile. And therefore I think probably either you have separate funders or a single funder who is more comfortable with that. To me, that's a really positive thing, not only for bringing through housing, office, retail, but I think also the policy side of that would promote it. I think council would be all in favour of mixed use. So the big opportunity for me coming out of this is, is very much that we see more mixed use. And hopefully with that comes a, a quality of product that we can all be very proud of. Mark, to add to James's point on the risks of development, just to finish, are there any final words you'd say on government plans and how they could perhaps make things a bit easier for development going forward? Yeah, I think there's several priorities. One I do think I share with James, I believe planning system has significant challenges in it. That's both about some of the policies, but also about the inadequate resources that the public sector side has. Personally, I think there are too many small planning departments we can do with fewer larger i mean hertfordshire has 10 separate departments which makes no sense whatsoever so we need to think around the planning system i think a government does need to look at the impact of stamp duty in terms of the transactions and what that's doing to the upper end particularly because that affects the chain of uh, property purchases and the third area which we haven't mentioned before I think is what do we do in terms of housing older people? Clearly, the dreadful tragedies in care homes is going to make the need to bring healthcare and personal care together in a much more integrated way. And why does that matter in the property world? I think it matters because the question as to how we can make sure that older people have appropriate accommodation for them, they have real choice and that they are a huge and growing part of the demographic anyway, we need to think more carefully about how that then integrates in terms of any care and support they will need in later life. I think most of us would want to feel that when we get older, we can be as independent for as long as possible. But that means investment in the housing stock. And this country is way behind many others in terms of the provision of retirement homes. And I don't necessarily mean care homes. In fact, I think care homes that model is going to come under immense pressure and new alternative approaches are going to be developed. So I actually think one of the big areas that we need to think about is how we provide accommodation that is appropriate for older people needing to and wanting to downsize, wanting the quality that's right, but also wanting not to be put behind a long way away from the rest of the community. I think there's a whole series of opportunities there which policy is behind on and one of the areas I want to focus on, and now I'm in the private sector, is how do we make sure that we're providing the kind of accommodation that most of us in later life would actually be happy to live in. If you enjoyed this episode of Intelligence Talks, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Acast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Please also make sure to share this episode on social media and check out the show notes for more information. Thank you.